Welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I'm at the Mandarin Oriental Hotel in Central. I know, the things I have to do for radio. Designed by Lee and Orange and opened in 1963, the Mandarin Oriental is celebrating its 60th birthday this year. So, if you want to pop in there and with cocktail in hand, walk over to the East Lobby, you'll find the Mandarin at 60 exhibit. Eight panels of photographs and historical information which tell the story not only of this hotel, but what was there before it. The exhibit is the work of History Inc., Hong Kong history author Vodine England, and two longtime archivists who've become a team to research the history of corporations, individuals, and institutions. I'll be revisiting their work and how important it is to record our history and how in another programme. Before the Mandarin Oriental, there was the Queen Elizabeth building, and Vaudine starts a century earlier. I mean, first of all, of course, you know me, I like to sort of take it back. And it wasn't going to be called the Mandarin Oriental. It was going to be called Queen's Hotel. Then there are the photos of the Mandarin bellboys. They were at school in the morning, and they were then able to work in the afternoon, and it was a kind of supported scheme. Vaudine England and I begin in the main lobby, where we admire the beautiful large fresco by the late artist Gerard Henderson. The goddesses, or alternatively known as the fairies, we had a big debate about which word we were supposed to use. And of course, different sources in the archive cupboard of the Mandarin Oriental Hotel referred variously to them as, you know, the three ladies, the goddesses, the fairies. For some reason, I don't know, I preferred goddesses. I think that's what we went with. It's a fantastic drawing, and the way it was made is quite extraordinary. The designer managed to get a, an actual drawing on paper projected up on the wall in that real life size that it is when the light shining through the lines of the drawing he suddenly could draw on the wall exactly to follow the outlines and which was then later inlaid with sort of gold paint and all the rest of it that you now see today it was rather brilliantly done and it's surrounded by all that wood carving which you also see down in the east lobby painted gold isn't yes it? Yeah. yes now and you think oh they've just made that up no they actually sent runners off to antique shops in China, which at the time in the 60s was um, not so easy, <laughs> but also around Hong Kong and Southeast Asia. Each piece of wood here and in the East Lobby are actual temple portals. They are the carvings around temple doors, and they've all been sort of put together, and you, you don't see the temple anymore, but it's fantastic woodwork. And it's a beautiful art piece all throughout. Mm, yes, I've always yes, liked that when I come into the lobby here. Mm. The Mandarin, for me, and, and I know the timings are completely different, mm. but if we look from one side of the water to the other, you've got the peninsula, of course, over in Kowloon, and you have the Mandarin here. And for me, I've been here 30 years. Mm. They're absolutely part of the furniture of Hong Kong. Well, yes, they are. And in fact, with both hotels, you can take them back to the late 19th century, which is when a lot of really important things happened for Hong Kong. The Suez Canal opened to business in 1869, and that really connected Hong Kong in a much better way than previously. You know, previous to that, you had to wait months for a letter from London or for instructions from the government, or, which, of well, course... quite handy. <laughs> <laughs> quite handy. <laughs> so many ways. Ask, ask Charles Elliot. So the first 
five-star hotel of Hong Kong was on Hong Kong side. It was the Hong Kong Hotel. And in fact, some of the early shareholders, of course, later became part of the Kuduri Empire, which founded the Peninsula Hotel in the late 1920s. And some of the early other shareholders of the Hong Kong Hotel became, of course, founders of Hong Kong Land, who... A generation or two later, after World War One and Two, decided to replace this what was once an office building here called Queen's Building with a five-star hotel. So you can actually claim your ancestors in both ways back to the 19th century. So you're right, they are connected. But of course the peninsula opened, I think, 1928, and the Mandarin Oriental opened its doors in 1963. But the genealogy, you can trace both back to the 1860s. Now, Vodine, you love your archives, but when you were working with your team at History Inc and putting together, I mean, we're looking here at eight wall panels that talk about some of the history of the Mandarin to mark its 60th anniversary. So what sort of fun things were you picking out? Well, I mean, first of all, of course, you know me, I like to sort of take it back. Um, I thought, well, I know well, We this. just did to 1869. <laughs> well, I went back to 1841 in the first panel because, of course, it's to do with, you know, when foreign trade came to the island of Hong Kong. And from that, you get a port city connecting to all these other Asian port cities growing very fast with all sorts of interesting different people coming along with ideas and plans. So that's why I think we have to go to the beginning of Hong Kong. Also, not least, because that connects directly to Jardines, Jardine Matheson & Co., which was founded in Canton in 1832. Really, it goes back that yes. far. <laughs> Let's go further back. Um, and of course, as we all know now, Hong Kong land is ultimately part of Jardines and the Mandarin Oriental Group. These are all quite separate functioning international conglomerates but they're you know lurking there in the background is is the Jardines umbrella so yes it does go way back and it has a very nice long long history in Hong Kong and then and I mentioned all these interesting different people coming to Hong Kong one of our favorite men Paul Katchik Chater of course arrived in the 1860s with very big ideas he is a co-founder of Hong Kong land and he with his very good friend at Jardines at that time who was not called either Jardine or Keswick, but John Bell Irving, they together had this idea of how they were going to reclaim all this land from the harbour that we now call the Central Business District. All the land in front of the tram line was water until Chater came along with this idea and decided, no, let's expand, let's build this land, let's found a company, Hong Kong Land, to build on that land that we're building. And so we'll have these gorgeous first line of buildings, which in this oriental compradoric architectural style. It's the first <laughs> time know. I've heard compradoric used oh, as an adjective. No. I've, I've been told, I've been told that, you know, people used to call it compradoric. Mm -hmm. So a marvellous play, obviously, on a much older architectural traditions, combining with the whole function of Hong Kong as a place, but also the people in it as middlemen and middlewomen, these in-between people who lubricated everything and made stuff happen. And, and one of them, as you know, is, is Chater. So thanks to him and his land building program, and then of course, the building building program, out of him, we get the old Hong Kong club building, the development of Statue Square, and then this lineup along the harbor of what was initially called 
Queen's Building and then Alexandra House behind, Prince's Building behind Queen's Building and then in those days King's Building, King's Mansions, Hotel Mansions, St George's Building in the middle which is still with the Kaduris who built the peninsula but this all goes far back or long before World War II so these buildings were this beautiful lineup of you know deep verandas ceiling fans yes. high ceilings those buildings survived really well they all kind of popped up around 1903 1904 and Chater as as with many migrants, and especially under then British colonial umbrella, was quite the royalist, you can tell from the names. <laughs> Queens, Kings, Princes, Alexander, etc. So Queen's Building survived as an office building until indeed the early 1960s. And the obvious idea amongst the managers at Hong Kong Land and was, well, we'll just pull that down and put a new, better, brighter office building in its place. And then you come to this visionary man, Hugh Barton, who was at that point the Taipan, and he said, no, you know, we're 1960s Hong Kong. It's a kind of similar moment back to the 1860s and 70s when tourism was taking a sort of quantum leap. And Hugh Barton foresaw that post-war tourism was going to develop, that Hong Kong would be a rather exotic and marvellous destination if we did it right, and that there was no five-star hotel on Hong Kong side. Oh, how interesting, at yeah. that point. Yeah. And of course, we forget now, but I mean, I think some of us do remember Kai Tak Airport. And of course, the logic, you get off your plane, you're a tourist in the 50s or something, and you go to your hotel on Kowloon side. Yeah, absolutely. Why on earth would you get a boat or something? And this is before the Cross Harbour Tunnel. So at the po that point in the 60s, this is seen much more as a business district. Yes. This was business, and tourists stayed in Kowloon. So there was an interesting bit, you mentioned archives. There's some really interesting discussions, of course, in Hong Kong land, where basically everybody said, don't be silly, we'll make much more money with an office building and Hugh Barton saying no he has this dream a bit like Chater had his dream of building the waterfront Barton had this they called it Barton's folly what a ridiculous idea why on earth would we need a hotel and his argument was and what he said was the thing that always amazed me about Hong Kong was that you could do twice as much in the same time as you could in the city of London for the simple reason that the people you wanted to see were all around you at most a five-minute walk away. That was one of my most pressing arguments for building a top-class hotel. That was Hugh's idea. He had to fight for it. And in terms of sort of plot ratio calculations, and then you got people saying, well, we, Hong Kong land, we're landlords, you know, we're not hoteliers. We rent office. And that's when history comes back in it. Hughes could say, well, actually, no, you know, we were part of Hong Kong Hotel back in the 1860s and 70s. <laughs> um, and actually, more to the point, the Gloucester Hotel. Now, hopefully, we still have people around who remember the Gloucester Hotel. And in fact, I remember friends telling me that, you know, their father would take them to the Gloucester Hotel to learn how to use Western cutlery, you know, out of Xiongwan, out of the... Chinese business district and that this was a bit of a hot spot in central. It kind of grew out of the Hong Kong Hotel arrangements and then Gloucester Hotel was in Gloucester Building, what we still call Gloucester Building, and it was quite the place to be before the war. There are some fabulous stories about, you know, spies and working ladies and uh, <laughs> <Working> oh, ladies. <laughs> uh, all sorts of marvellous things going on in the corridors of Gloucester, which, as you can see, was quite a stylish Yes. So actually, uh, let's have a look at some of yes. the architecture. So the Queen's Building is designed by Leon Orange, of course, who uh, mm. also designed uh, what was formerly the Legislative Council Building and also the Supreme Court built in 1912 mm. and has gone back to 
court activities. The thing about Lee and Orange that I like, they were always a bit more flamboyant, a bit more colourful with their designs. And leaping well ahead to the future, of course, they were brought in to do the Mandarin Oriental that replaced Queen's Building. So they've been on this site from the beginning. So this is the beginning of the Mandarin Oriental. Yes, and of course it wasn't called that in the beginning. It was going to be called Queen's Hotel. And then there was this hilarious process. Well, I felt it was hilarious. I'm sure they didn't find it so at the time. They actually did a public appeal in 1961. What do you think, everybody? What should we call our new hotel? They got something, almost 3,000 names, but the directors still, perhaps we might say, a little bit stuck in the mud. Thought, no, no, Queen's is good. We'll stick with Queen's. We've looked at these 3,000 suggestions. No, we'll stick with Queen's. But all of a sudden, and I was quite curious about this for a while, it took a while to pin this down. Finally, we found this note in the minutes saying that after further consideration, the board of directors feel that the Mandarin more satisfactorily reflects the oriental setting and atmosphere of this hotel. And I think an important point here is that at the same time as the Mandarin was opening, just up the road, the Hilton was being built. So there was going to be another five-star hotel. And the point for everybody involved in what is now the Mandarin Oriental was to differentiate themselves from the Hilton. Now, I mean, many of us love the old Hilton as well, and it had lovely aspects. However, that sort of American modernist style clearly was not going to do for the Mandarin Oriental. So I think the idea was to sort of emphasize what some people might now even go as far as to criticize as a sort of Orientalist approach. But nonetheless, this is exotic. We want to attract tourists and appealing to that idea, oh, there's this amazing shopping center in the middle of the East, you know, the Far East, the Orient or whatever. So the Mandarin became the name. Later on, because a really key point about this hotel is it's the first in what became an international brand. And of course, at the time, even Hugh Barton didn't foresee that. The idea was travellers, luxury travellers, yes. business people. And definitely business people, business and tourists. And that certainly is still the case today. But of course, then they had to go into quite a bit of marketing to persuade people who have landed at Kai Tak over there to make it clear that it was very easy to get across the water onto Hong Kong Island and to use the island as a base instead of being in Kowloon. So there was a Walla Walla dedicated to the Mandarin. Oh. Um, and of course, as the tunnel opened in the next decade, in the 1970s, a whole fleet of marvellous cars. So they had to get into quite a marketing thing about, you know, Hong Kong as a tourist destination. So you see this map here, and it's actually the Mandarin made this map of Hong Kong Island and all the marvellous things around it, and especially the south side and the bays. Oh, so you and see all the tourist attractions yes, at exactly. that time. So what and sort of year is this? This is in the early 70s, where it was the only one on the Hong Kong Island side. Here's the sampan that would bring guests sort of virtually to the door at that point. It, I mean, because of course we didn't have all this extra reclamation in front of us yet. And that, you know, the wording especially was saying, well, you, you're used to coming to do your shopping in Kowloon, you know, flitting from Taylor to Curio Shop. But in fact, 20 minutes... From Central, you can be on golden sands, cooling seas of a dozen beaches, etc., and the Mandarin trunk would take you there. So they had to do quite a bit of marketing about that. The other key bit, and people at Hong Kong Land will be very upset that I haven't mentioned this yet, is the footbridge. 
and we now, again, take it totally for granted that you walk out through the Mandarin. That was pioneering. Yes, <laughs> it was. <laughs> I mean, there was, I've got to be anal here, there was one bridge between the Hong Kong Club main building and the annex building behind the Hong Kong Club, So, but that was a private footbridge. The footbridge here that links the Mandarin to Prince's building I mean, the the kind of thought that went into this, I was quite amazed. It's crucial to the whole concept of this hotel and the role it could play also for tourists because the point was it needed a shopping gallery connected. If you're in a hotel in Kowloon, you're you're living in a real-life sort of shopping fantasia. You know, you just walk out of your hotel, it's all there. If we had not had this footbridge into Prince's Building, and Prince's Building was very much deliberately created because it was also being rebuilt at the time with these whole sort of floors of shops you know if that hadn't happened you'd walk out of the mandarin and you'd be in a bunch of office buildings and it would be kind of boring for a tourist so the footbridge was kind of crucial to the plan that connected to this hotel were hundreds of marvelous shops you could do all your shopping here you didn't even need to go to Kowloon, which is quite a radical thought at the time and so that sort of integration of the two buildings was really important to the success of the hotel in the early years. Who were, let's get on to the stars, who were the types of people? (laughs) Let me see. Gina Lollabrigida there, of course, she's just died recently. Yes, oh look, there's zillions, you know. There's Peter O'Toole. Kirk um, Douglas. Yes, uh, Charlton Heston, the Queen and King of Belgium, uh, all sorts of statesmen. Kissinger loved this place. Right, Henry Kissinger. Richard Nixon. Yes. And, you know, part of how this came about in the beginning, I mean, it's not just as simple as what we've said here, we have built it and they will come. The design and the build was a huge project on its own, and it was extremely complex and detailed, multi-leveled sort of process. But then you need a human element. Who's bringing them in? Here we go back to another great old Hong Kong family, the Li Haizan clan, which produced, of course, Li Haizan and then his sons Richard and Harold Li. Harold Lee was the first chairman of the company that owned the Mandarin. Harold knew all the best people in the world. I mean, whether we think they're great people or not now is not the point. They were extremely well connected. So, for example, if he's in Washington, he would go see his friend, Mr. Nixon. And so, of course, you know, Nixon would come here. In London, he'd be dining at Downing Street and in Switzerland or anywhere in Europe, he would be moving. So all these people say, oh, you've got a hotel in Hong Kong, you know, so they would come. So Harold had a lot to do with it, just his own personality. Harold Lee. Harold Lee. And I love this story that one of the descendants of the family told me once, which was, you know, in the early days, having to, of course, train staff and get everybody used to being five-star and the kinds of diversity of of guests that were coming. One of the marvellous ways to really get a sense of the personality and the style of, in this case, a hotel, but it could also be any kind of other company, is, of course, you've got to connect with the people who first worked with them and how that evolved. One of the most marvellous quotes I'd ever been given about this hotel comes from Martin Spurrier, and he told me once that, well, because he'd been in a tank regiment, you know, he's trained at Sandhurst and everything, and he says, discipline at the Mandarin makes the army 
army looked like a kindergarten. And I thought, oh my goodness me, because of course when you think about it, it's a five-star hotel, everything has to be exactly, you know, that coffee has to be just right every time. And so that comes down to these staff. And I loved, the, we, there were so many fabulous pictures of staff, from the little page boys in their, oh, in their yeah. little button caps. There was a scheme even whereby they were at school in the morning and they were then able to work in the afternoon and it was a kind of supported scheme so that because these were from families who couldn't afford to have them only at school there needed to be other income and so some of these they really are page boys boys and then there were millions of pictures of staff which were and it was really really hard to choose but it's quite clear they're having fun and they seem to enjoy what they're doing and of course many of us might remember the the concierge Giovanni Valenti who was such a, a figure in the lobby for so long and knew just everybody and I think he's right when he says that the lobby here had real soul as far as he he felt so yes of course Giovanni he was very colorful there mm. and always perfectly attired in his mm. his long sort of coattails mm. but a man who goes back virtually well just uh, you know nine years after the Mandarin Oriental is founded here is Danny Lai Yes, and it was actually rather sad that literally just as we were starting work on this project, Danny passed away. So Danny had been an absolute institution here forever. Everybody knew him. He was first hired in 1972 and was head of operations here for almost half a century. I mean, that was quite, quite a record. So he, again, was one of these figures who just knew everybody in town. Anyone could come through the lobby and, and you know, Danny would know their name and say hello. And, you know, it's the kind of thing that people at clubs say is so important about clubs that you're known. Well, that happened here too, and it, it still does. When you have staff who want to be part of this thing for a long period, then that creates that feeling. Danny Lai was a total institution, and there are a lot of people, I mean, from around the world were all sending in messages when he died. Yes, I mean, I think that's a real skill. And also, Giovanni's talked to me about that, that whatever's going on, you have to stay remarkably calm. You mm. can never, you know, mm. you'll have the most incredibly demanding mm. customers and uh, you have to just keep it, keep it cool. It's interesting, along with the bellboys here, which I think is the most endearing photo ever, above it is Andy Warhol found inspiration on his Mandarin Oriental balcony, and that's a photo going right back uh, to the 60s. You know, we're becoming pretty hip and cool here. Look, we have John Lennon, we have Andy Warhol. Um, Do you think any of them trashed the rooms? <laughs> Weirdly, one wasn't told. No, I think it became sort of a place that it was seen as the only place to stay if you were going to be certainly on this side. And so, for example, over here we have Princess Diana. What's interesting about this picture is not it's not Diana, it's the little girl you see just the back of here, giving her a bouquet to welcome her. It's only been discovered later and by chance that this little girl is Victoria Tang, the daughter of Sir David Tang. He was a first real supporter and instigator of this whole campaign of, you know, I'm a fan. The Mandarin Oriental Hotel was saying about some of the people that came and, and what I enjoy about your panels here is it encompasses the fact that it's at the same time as in 1973 the Hong Kong Arts Festival is being founded. You've got this takeoff of tourism, so you've got all of these tourism magazines and in fact then the Mandarin Oriental is on the world stage and, and, and getting voted for by the Financial Times. You've got much more travel at that time, I mean, once we start also moving into the 70s and 80s. And 
You also have, of course, the women's movement coming up in a big way through this whole area. And there we have in the Mandarin Oriental, the Chinnery Bar. Now, going way back before 1841, yet again, to George Chinnery, the painter, who was in Canton and Macau. And he was, of course, a fantastic character and a fantastic painter. He was also a truly dedicated misogynist. And uh, well, he just left women in debt <laughs> and paintings. <laughs> the bar initially, and it was this was completely normal at the time, that it was for men only. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of almost, to me, inconceivable now that you could have a bar in a major sort of central location where women are not allowed. And But for some years that was the case, and it was the chinnery. And it was only in the 1990s <laughs> and and it's it's a we've had to use this picture quite small down the bottom because it wasn't sort of big enough to play big but you see some very stylish ladies who who decided it's a bit like using the word guaylo when you when a guaylo uses it it's all right so these ladies said well we're going to dress up as tarts and we're going to take over the chinnery um, and you can see they did dress up rather marvelously and they did take over the chinnery and it was just no longer tenable after that to say that this was a men a men only bar and location. I mean, it's still a lovely place, obviously. Yes, I hope, I mean, I hope some men have sort of managed to cope. Um, but <laughs> but there were there were some grumbles at the time, of course. Yes, and, and you've got at the top there George Chinnery rolls in his grave. <laughs> yes. But you've, yeah, you've got the Chinnery Bar, you've got the Captain's Bar, um, you've got all these institutions. And only some of us will remember, right back to the very beginning, on the top of the hotel, was this kind of supper club. First of all, it was called the Button Supper Club, and I had to spend some time saying, why Button? Why? And it turns out to be something to do with the button on the top of a little mandarin's cap. And just to indicate, you know, this was on the top, the top of the hotel. And then this was converted into the Harbour Room, uh, 1973, renamed the Harbour Room. And so, of course, they call an Eartha kit to sing it into existence. And, I mean, it, really, I would have liked to have been there. It would have been quite nice. Yes. So, Eartha kit wowed the crowds at the yes, Harbour Room indeed. in 1973. At the front of the Mandarin Oriental, there's always been a tradition of Sikh doorman. Yes, which I don't think is still the case today, actually. But in the beginning, that was always the first moment of, of greeting. And it was, again, this this way of creating a sense of drama and occasion about this hotel, which I hadn't realised consciously was going on until I got into the sort of the way the designers were talking to each other. The original designer of the lobbies and the restaurants and everything was this guy called Don Ashton, and he had come from the film world. He was someone who created sets on films. So, you know, really locations for huge drama. And that's part of the idea behind the Mandarin. In the beginning, the decor, you step into this world, it's a different one. And that's why perhaps people like William Holden liked staying here when they were filming things like The World of Susie Wong or Many Splendid Thing. He stayed here, so he'd be living in one film set and going to work on another. <laughs> but part of that sense of drama was, you know, you'd be picked up by your Rolls-Royce Phantom at the airport, you'd be whisked over here to the front door, and there's suddenly this tall, imposing, marvellous man in his fantastic sort of red outfit. Karam Singh was the first guy. I mean, honestly, the designer of the outfits, you know, that's another whole department. And she had decided to sort of combine all sorts of things which don't make total historical sense, but let's not worry about the detail. You know, the red coat, the turban, the mogul horseman boots, the gold braid. I mean, the point is, it's dramatic, it's impressive, and you always think, oh yeah, that's that place where we, you know, got greeted by this guy in the red coat. I mean, you still hear people say that. So... I think that kind of thing 
was rather clever and it meant that you had personalities. I mean, of course, he must have said hello to, I mean, how many millions of people? Oh, I know. <laughs> and it would lovely, be lovely to have his memoirs, wouldn't it? But there's no sign of those yet. And that's where we get back to archives. So even things like that, people say, oh, it's nothing important. It's just some photos of some party. That is archival gold. If you can sit down with somebody and say, so you were at this party. So who did you go with? What did you wear? Why? Why did you wear those things? And then you get this story coming out and you work and then you're putting their minds into that moment and then they suddenly remember who else is in the photo. But it's also down to something like maybe you do have a member of your staff who is keeping a diary. Find that person. Keep that diary. That is archival gold and it adds into something that makes a a bigger story out of you know what you think of maybe just the day job but no for nobody it's not ever really just the day job there's always something more to it and that was the other thing about the staff at the hotel a lot of them were interrelated in the beginning oh. <laughs> yes there were a couple of some of the staff from the gloucester came over so you know the father would have worked at the gloucester and then four or five sons then worked at the mandarin or you'd have this sort of clan spreading through the kitchens and these people stayed working in this hotel for generations. Or, of course, weirdly enough, people would meet on the job and actually marry. A romantic note to end on with Vodine England there talking on the 60th anniversary of the Mandarin Oriental in Central. The Mandarin at 60 exhibit by History Inc. is in the east lobby of the hotel and is on permanent display. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.